Okay, so this is, this is a pretty short little psalm. And it's a, it's a psalm written by David. David is the king of Israel. Uh, I'm not totally sure whether he wrote this before he became king, after he became king. Uh, but it's written by David. And David is a guy in the Bible who's said to be a man after God's own heart. And so whenever you see a psalm that you know, is ascribed to David, pay attention. Because you know, there's probably some stuff, some heart stuff here that's worth paying attention to. And the first thing he says at the beginning of the psalm is, Keep me safe, O God, for in you have taken refuge. So uh, David's in trouble. He hasn't told us right away like, why he's in trouble. Um, we know that David was in trouble a lot um, before he became king. Uh, he was pursued by King Saul, who was meant to be th- this ideal king to rule over Israel and actually became corrupt and became one of the worst disasters that Israel had ever experienced. And so King David is the rightful king. He's been anointed to be Saul's successor, and Saul refuses to give David the throne. He's, a, he's power hungry. He's a usurper. And so David, for years, has to be on the run for his life, living out in the deserts and in the wilderness. Uh, so, you know, he's in trouble that way, even when he becomes king. David is constantly involved in wars and battles, and so you, know, you can imagine, this is, this is like a, a high-risk kind of guy. And so it's not a surprise that at the very beginning of the psalm, he says, Keep me safe, O God. Keep me safe. And then in the next part of the verse, look at what he says. He says, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. So he's always in trouble, and now he's telling us, you know, what I really need, what I really, really want is, you know, it, it's, it's not... Sharper weapons and, 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 and stronger, you know, a stronger shield. It's not greater grit. He says what I need is a hiding place. What he wants is a refuge. He wants a place where he can feel safe. You know, it's kind of surprising. You think of David as this big macho man, you know, because he's a warrior, right? But what he says is like, I want a place where I can feel, where I can know the protection of God. He knew he was dependent. He knew he was dependent. And so what we're going to see in this particular psalm here is that eventually he is going to tell us why he's in trouble. You're going to find out like why he's so scared here in verse 1. But what happens first is that for the next couple of verses, from verses 2 all the way down to verse 8, what David does is he basically takes his fears and he turns them into worship. And what you see him doing here, it's almost as though David is kind of going in to his private prayer closet. Um, or you know, he has his own private little worship session just to himself in his own heart. Um, what this kind of reminds me of, uh, centuries and centuries ago, like one of the places where God did um, an amazing work was in the country of Ireland among the, the Celtic Christians. And these guys were so on fire for their faith uh, that they, they, um, they, they recognized that like, because persecution was no longer happening um, in the way that it happened under the Roman Empire, they realized, well, you know, we're probably not going to be able to, to be killed for our faith. We're not going to be able to be martyrs shedding our blood in order to show, like, <laughs> the, 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 the passion that we have for Jesus. And so they, they really wanted to, like, give all that they had. And so, and so they came up with what they called um, green martyrdom and white martyrdom. You know, they thought of red martyrdom. That's where you actually die. You, know, you spill your blood for your faith. But green martyrdom, they considered that a, a, a kind of life where you would devote your life um, to praying to being in solitude, seeking after God, seeking his face. And, and that was their way of saying, I want to lay down my whole life for this. And then there was this other group among the Irish Christians, and they, they were called the White Martyrs. And they would literally take these little coracles, and they would, um, coracles are like little boats, and they would uh, get in these boats, 
and they would uh, just allow the, the currents and the winds to carry them wherever it carried them. And whenever the boat stopped, they just believed that, well, this is where God has taken me. This is where he wants me to tell people about Jesus. And if you go um, in, into the histories, you know, I think you know, what, what we know is that a lot of places that were you know, these major Christian centers in, in mainland Europe, uh, a lot of times had a connection to one of these, these guys who like, just was in a little boat, showed up, and then began to tell people about Jesus. So... Uh, I don't know why I brought that up. I'm getting sidetracked here. <laughs> but, but I remember why I brought it up. The reason I brought it up is that those guys, one of the things that, that, that they uh, would talk about, they had what they called thin spaces. And to them, a thin space was a place where, like, it, it was like maybe a, a, a favorite place where you would pray. And, and the reason they called them thin spaces is because um, those were places where God's presence um, they would experience that. Like, it was as though the, kind of the, the veil between heaven and earth became thinner. They called it the thin space. Psalm 16 is like sort of a picture of what David's thin space was like. These verses that we're going to look at now um, basically show David uh, like in private, before God, like praying and worshiping. And so there's a lot of insight here into like, man, what does it actually look like to be someone who has had their heart changed by, by God? So look at verse 2. First thing he says Uh, Verse 2, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Now, one thing that that, uh, is a little confusing about about what I just read here is that in English, you can't quite tell that there are two different words for Lord that are being used. So the first thing he says, I said to the Lord, I said to Yahweh, that's God's personal name. I said to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. The word Adonai is a word that just means master. But we use the English word Lord to translate both of those. So what he's saying is, he's talking to God. He's saying, like, God, Yahweh, like this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is the one I'm talking about. You are my Lord. You are my master. You're the one who is the center of my universe. And so what David starts off his little worship session uh, affirming is that, God, you're the number one person in my life. You know, I'm, uh, you are not a character in my story. I'm a character in your story. You know, my life is not about trying to, like, contort you to fit my plans. Like, what life is really about is me being a part of your bigger plan um, for not just my life, but for the whole whole universe, for the whole uh, sum of history. And so David, David is saying, like, you're the center of my universe. And then he says at the end of verse 2, he says, apart from you, I have no good thing. And he's reminding himself, he's saying, like, I could look everywhere throughout this world for something that would satisfy my hungry heart. Like, I have a hungry heart, and my heart is hungry to find something that is beautiful and good and true. And he's looking at God, and he's saying, God, you're where that's found. Apart from you, I have no good thing. And just by the way, you know, sometimes I think it's easy to read a verse like this and to think that, oh, what the Bible is saying is that, like, you know, only God is, you know, God is the only good thing, and, like, we can't look at anything else and appreciate it. You know, that, that's not true at all, because if God is the one who made a good creation, then what that means is that, like, if you know him, you can see him through a beautiful sunset. You can see him through, um, you know, just like a, a beautiful sunset. But one, one, of the, one of the things that I really love about nature is just this very fact that, like, a lot of times... When I'm out in nature, I find myself wanting to glorify God more out of thankfulness that he's made so many amazing uh, elements of goodness and beauty in the creation. I I heard a story once about a guy who loved nature, loved hiking, and uh, one day he 
uh, came to a place in his life where he decided, like, man, I, I've not really been I'm a follower of Jesus before. I, I've decided I want to follow Jesus. And so he became a Christian. And, and afterward, one of the things he said uh, that was the most amazing change for him um, after making that step was he said, you know, man, now when I'm out in nature and I'm beholding all of this beauty, I finally have someone that I can thank for it. I finally have someone I can thank for it. So David says, God, you're my Lord. You're the center of the universe to me. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Verse 3. As for the saints who were in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. And actually, I'm going to read the next verse too. Verse 4. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. So what is he saying here? Well, so he, he's all of a sudden talking about the saints. You know, what does he mean there? He's not talking about like you know, Mother Teresa or Pope John Paul or something like that. He's not talking about saints in kind of like a Roman Catholic sense. He's just talking about believers. He's saying, God, like, when I look at, like, all of the people out there, the, the people that, that I want to spend my time with are the people who know you. Like, when I'm with your people, when I'm with other people who love you and want to follow you, those are the people that I delight in. Like, just get me with those people. I can't get enough time with other people who want to follow Jesus with me. If you want to follow Jesus, then this is something that all of us need too. What I find is, has been one of the biggest catalysts in just my own walk with God is to surround myself with other men and women um, who challenge me and who inspire me by the kinds of lives they led. Um, and a lot of times, those people are dead. Like you have to actually go and find books, biographies, you know, um, bits of church history and read about them. You know, I remember... Um, one of the guys that I really looked up to when I uh, still do, uh, but especially when I was in high school, was a guy named Jim Elliott. And I looked up to him because he was a guy who um, was about my age, you know, my age now. And, and just like a man who just had such a passion for following God um, that he walked the walk, he talked the talk. Um, and just was an example to me of, man, like, this challenges me, this excites me. Who are those people in your life? Like, find people that inspire you and challenge you and get yourself with them. David says, those are the people in whom is all my delight. And, and, and I just want to say something, uh, one, one more thing about this. Right now, one of the things that I think um, I see happening in our world is that the world, and when I say the world, all, all I mean by that, I'm not talking about, like, the world, the globe. Uh, I'm just talking about uh, the world in one of the ways that the Bible sometimes uses that word, which is the anti-God forces that are present in um, in society, that, that that world wants to see the church split apart. Right now, there is enormous pressure, if you're a Christian, to put your politics over Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed this, but like when it comes to um, this issue or that issue, some of those issues are claimed by the Republicans. Some of those issues are claimed by the Democrats or you know, conservatives, liberals, however you want to put it. And the thing is, we can be more loyal to those allegiances than we can be to Jesus. I fear that some Christians are more faithful to people like Ben Shapiro or Rachel Maddow or to, you know, uh, I, I don't know, fill in your favorite you know, political pundit. Instead of actually looking to what God's word says and recognizing that if you want to be a biblical Christian... There are probably going to be some people who look at you and say, wow, that person is liberal. 
And then there are going to be other people looking at you. They're going to say, wow, that person is conservative. Because you know what? There are going to be some things that probably are going to look a little bit more liberal. And there are going to be some things that look a little bit more conservative. And, and here's the risk. If you allow your like, political allegiances to be of greater value to you than your allegiance to Jesus and to his people, then that's going to split the church. You know, like, I, I have heard in this last season, as there's been all kinds of politics swirling around in our country, and these are things that, like, Christians should pay attention to. You know, we shouldn't just be aloof and say, oh, I just don't care. Like, no, we're called to be in the world but not of the world. We're called to engage. But one of the things that's grieved me is, is hearing of, of Christians who say to other Christians, like, I just I can't even, like, read your posts on social media anymore. I just need to block you because I'm so incensed with, you know, this viewpoint that you're espousing. Or I'm so incensed about this or so incensed about that. Forgetting the fact that we have a unity in Jesus that is so much higher than that, that is so much thicker than that. And what David is saying here in Psalm 3 is, like, shame on me if I'm taking more delight in people who are, you know, of my political persuasion rather than taking delight in in, in God's people because they're God's people. Don't allow all of the different allegiances in this world to dilute your allegiance to Jesus and to his people. Verse 3. Verse 4. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. So now, you know, David, he's in his little prayer closet, and he's just kind of affirming all of these truths about, about who God is. He's saying, man, this is the God I'm worshiping. And one of the things he says here is that it's something actually about kind of the opposite. He's saying, like, God, if I'm not following after you, then what's going to happen to me the answer is, there's going to be a lot of sorrow. There's going to be a lot of sorrow. And he's telling his heart, he's saying, like, there's a lot of stuff on offer to me right now. But I'm going to choose to not buy the stuff that the world is selling me. Because all the world has to offer is, is sorrow, is sadness, is, is regret. If you remember the, the famous story in the Bible, the story of the prodigal son. And, and this is, of course, the, the famous story about the, the younger son who goes out in to a distant country and he squanders all of his wealth just kind of living for himself. He's rebelled against his father. And one of the things that it says there is that when he comes to the end of his end of himself, you know, and he's, he's having to like feed pigs and eat pig food because he's just so poor. He, 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 that's, he, that's all he's got. He says, he lo- says that he longs to eat the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And the reality is, is that the world never gives. You can chase after it. You can put all your eggs in that basket. But if you are trying to find your identity, if you're trying to find your sense of purpose, if you're trying to find your sense of joy, your sense of satisfaction, in anything other than Jesus, it'll never deliver. It'll never deliver. The world never gives. Some of you know this. Some of you know this because you've been there before. David's saying, I just, like, I don't want to get mixed up in that. Like, I, as tempting as that is, as tempting as that is, I know that if I go down that path, I'm going to be sad in the end. And by the way, I want to notice the order of these verses here. Verse 4 comes after verse 3. You know, David kind of realizes, like, the, 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 the um, kind of the, the substancelessness of all of these other alternatives to God only after he's talked about, like, how amazing it is um, having a relationship with God. You know, the, the way that they train people to spot counterfeit money is by just, like, having people look at genuine dollar bills. 
If you, if you want to learn how to spot the counterfeit, you have to know the real thing. And I think the reason that verse 4 comes after verse 3 is because in verse 3, David's talking about the real thing. And because of that, he knows the counterfeit. So David's saying, God, you're my God. He's saying, you are the, you, you are the, the source of all the goodness that is in my life. He's saying, I just love to surround myself with other people who are following you, who challenge me. That fills my heart. That feeds my soul. Because of that, I know that, like, man, I don't want to run down this other path that's going to lead me to, to, to sorrow and to regret. Verses 5 and 6. He says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion in my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. So this word portion is important. Back in, in, in the Old Testament, that would have been a land word. You know, portion would have been like a piece of land that was your inheritance. And land was your most valuable thing, piece of property. And when David is saying, like, Lord, you've assigned me that. What he's saying is, God, like, I trust you with my lot in life. I trust you with my lot in life. Like, I am not going to try to, to compromise my commitment to you and climb this ladder to get to the top. Because I know that if I'm going to compromise to get to the top, I'm going to compromise to stay at the top. He says, Lord, I trust you with my lot in life. I surrender to your guidance on my life. And I want to receive with thanksgiving the position in this world that you give me. I think it was, um, it might have been Tom Brady. Um, there's this famous interview with him. Here, maybe there's a Tom Brady fan out there. I won't hold that against you. Uh, but there's this interview with him where he's being interviewed. And, uh, you know, he's like won a couple of Super Bowls at this point already. And, and the interviewer uh, kind of gets a little personal. And Brady's like, you know, man, like I, I've done all these things. And I just feel like there's, there's got to be something more. But I just, like, I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's almost like, you know, like someone's given him a script to read. Like, it's just, um, it's pretty remarkable. What, what David is saying here, he says, like, man, like, I know that if I just prioritize trying to do what I feel is best for me, if I just I try to take my life in my own hands, if I'm the one driving this, the, the car of my life rather than allowing Jesus to be the one um, to, to do that, then ultimately I'm never going to be satisfied. Like there's too huge of a hole in my heart to be satisfied by anything that this world has to offer. And so he's saying, Lord, you've assigned me my portion in my cup. And ultimately, like if you're someone like David, who, uh, you know, is able to, to, to say some of these things, I think what you find is that ultimately, like you, you find that Jesus kind of takes that place. Like a portion is like the one thing in the world that you would claim above every other thing. Like, you know, take all of these other things I could have had and give me this. That's what a portion is. And one of the most exciting things about following Jesus is realizing, man, <laughs> that's what Jesus is. Like, of all the things that I could have in this world, he's just better. He's just better. You know, I, some of you know I, I got to spend a little bit of time in graduate school. One of the guys that I went to graduate school I was actually somewhat of a, a famous uh, Christian speaker. Uh, maybe you guys have heard of a guy named Nabil Qureshi. You guys ever heard of him? Um, he was a, a speaker who would speak a lot on like Christian apologetics and stuff like that. He just happened to uh, be in the same graduate program at the same time I was, and didn't really get to know him that well, but just you know would see him sitting across the table sometimes. And, but the crazy thing was, a year like actually no, not even a year, like a couple of months after I I left, um, he came down with stage four cancer. And within like nine months to 12 months, he was dead. 
And I remember uh, you know, he would make these little video blogs, uh, kind of walking uh, his followers through um, just his cancer journey. And it was just so crazy because like, you're watching these videos and there he is suffering. And he's still saying like, just how amazingly blessed he is knowing Jesus. And just how like, his heart is full of love rather than resentment and, and bitterness. And man, I don't know how else to explain that. Unless Jesus was his portion. Unless what this psalm says is really true. i got to hurry here because I'm almost out of time. Uh, verse 7. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So okay, I'm going to kind of skip over verse 7 just because of the interest of time here. But, but what's happened here is that from basically like the verse 2 of this psalm all the way to where we are now. Like, David's in his prayer closet, and he's just speaking back to his heart, like, here is who my God is. <laughs> here are all these things that are glorious about him. And it's kind of like he's trying to, like, heat up his heart in order just to remind himself in the midst of his fear. Because remember, he's afraid. Remember, he's in trouble. He's reminding himself of how much he has um, in God. And finally, in verse 8, it kind of comes to a climax. And in verse 8, he says, I have set the Lord always before me. You know, basically what he's saying is he's saying, in every single circumstance, like, I am, I, I'm going to look at this circumstance through the lenses of, of what I know to be true about God and about his love for me. And because of that, like, he's able to say, I will not be shaken. Like, when you're... <clears throat> Doing what David is doing, like that's actually a source of, of confidence. It's like an anchor to the soul, the Bible says. And so David says, I will not be shaken. And then finally, in verses 9 through 10, we finally learn why it is that David um, has been in trouble this whole time. Um, and, and why he's been so concerned to remind himself of all of these things to be an anchor to his soul. So let me read you verses 9 and 10 here, and it all come together. So verses 9 and 10, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. So what is David afraid of here? What you find out in this psalm is that David is afraid of dying. He says, you know, the reason I'm like rejoicing here." It's because now that I've reminded myself of who you are, it's also reminded me that you're not going to abandon me to the grave. And this is a remarkable thing to say, because if you know the Old Testament, you know there are not very many glimpses in the Old Testament of kind of what we would call eternal life. You know, it says in the book of 2 Timothy in the New Testament that through the gospel, Jesus has brought light and life. Uh, and, 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 yeah, you know, Jesus has brought immortality to light through uh, the gospel. That is basically only when Jesus shows up that you kind of get the full picture of heaven and hell and afterlife and all that kind of stuff. But David gets a glimpse of it here. And he says, like, I have this confidence that God is not going to abandon me to that fate. Now, why does he say that? You know, how can David know that? You know, there, there's, like I said, there's not a whole lot in the Old Testament that would kind of indicate that. So what is it? That, that allows David to say that. And on top of that, like, what is it that allows David to say everything he said in this psalm? Because here's the problem. When you look at a psalm like this, and you see all these amazing things that David is saying, and you stack that up with your own heart, and sometimes how like, it can feel um, to, to be trying to like, do what David does, reminding yourself of, man, like, here's who God is. Like, a lot of times, it's hard to do that, because like, if you're going through a hard time, you know, it may just be that, like, well... <laughs> 
Like God's kind of hung me out to dry. And instead of feeling my heart full of worship, my heart really just kind of feels full of bitterness. So we've looked at what David is, is, is telling himself. We've kind of looked at this heart of worship that he has. The question is, what's the foundation for that? How does he do that? And how can we do what he does? Um, and, and where can we find that kind of heart of worship? The answer is in what we just read. Because some of you might know that this is not the only place that these words appear in the Bible. I want to have you flip over to the New Testament. And I want you to go to the book of Acts chapter 2. In the book of Acts chapter 2, Acts is the book that tells the story of what happened uh, once Jesus passed the baton to his disciples. And they begin to spread the word about who he was uh, all around the world. And one of the very first things that happened in that era of history was one of Jesus' disciples named Peter stood up and gave a speech to thousands and thousands of his own countrymen, uh, uh, Jews who had come from all over the place to uh, Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. And he explains to them the good news about Jesus. And here's what he says in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to start here in verse 22. And as you read this, you're going to notice that uh, Peter quotes from Psalm 16. So uh, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. My microphone died. I'm going to just talk really loud. Okay, so, so verse 25, he's now about to quote Psalm 16. He says, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Okay, now here's Peter's explanation. He says, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. So you guys see what's happened here. When people would read that psalm before Jesus, what they probably thought was that, oh, when David says that, oh, you're not going to abandon me to the grave, you're not going to let your holy one see the cake, they probably thought, oh, David's talking about himself. You know, he's saying that God is not going to let me, King David, like suffer, you know, eternal death without any resurrection. But what Peter says is, look, that can't be true. Because look at what Psalm 16 says. It says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. And as Peter is saying those words, he is literally like within eyesight of where David is buried. Remember, he's in Jerusalem. And he's able to probably point to the people he's talking to and say, guys, like, this couldn't have been about King David. Because look, David died and he's buried right over there. His body's a skeleton. His body did see decay. So Psalm 16 is not a psalm about King David. Psalm 16 is a psalm about King Jesus. And when Psalm 16 prophesies that God has this special person, this holy one, who's not going to see decay, that was looking ahead 
to the day that Jesus would come when he would lay down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for every single human being who has ever lived because of the way that we had sinned and rebelled against God. But that God was not going to leave him in the grave. He was not going to abandon him to that. But because Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived, because he died the death that we should have died, God looked on that and said, this satisfies my perfect righteous justice. And so as proof of that, he raised Jesus from the dead. And he's the one that Psalm 16 is really about. See, if you read this psalm, and you just say, man, I want to be a worshiper like David. You're going to feel crushed, because who can actually have that kind of heart toward God? But when you look at what this psalm really points to, and you recognize that this psalm is pointing to what Jesus did on our behalf, that is where a heart of worship is really going to come from. Because you're going to see that like Jesus accomplished what I couldn't. He was the only one who truly loved God in the way that Psalm 16 talks about. He's the only one who was the perfect example of worship. It's not about me. It's not about King David. It's about him. And when you recognize that someone who is as perfect as all of that was willing to come and step down into this world and, and, and take my place, the place that I deserved on that cross, the result is, is awe, it's wonder, it's gratitude, it's thanksgiving. And in fact, it's probably pretty similar to the heart of worship that David has here in Psalm 16. And this psalm ends with one of the most beautiful verses in the whole Bible. And I just want to conclude with this tonight. The final verse, verse 11 says, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And for us who are on the other side of the cross, this verse it's got to be one of the most exciting verses in the Bible. Because what this is saying is that because of what Jesus has done, we can know fullness of joy through him. And you know, like, one of the things that's been crazy to me about coronavirus is, like, for the first time in a long time in our culture, the fear of death has reared its head in a pretty dramatic way. Like, people are afraid of dying. This psalm says that we don't have to fear death. Um, you know, just speaking personally, one of the ways that, like, I've gotten through this time is that I think about heaven almost every single day. I do. I do, because it's only by having an eternal perspective that I'm able just to kind of keep everything in, <laughs> keep, keep everything in real perspective. And when I realize that, man, like, this life is just a blip in, the, in, in view of eternity, that there is literally nothing that can separate me from the love of God, not coronavirus, you know, not, not, not anything. There's a security and a confidence in that that ultimately comes from what Jesus purchased for us through what he did on the cross. So man, like that promise of eternal joy, that promise of, of, of knowing the, the, the deep satisfaction of relationship with God is open to every single person because Jesus has blown open the door that makes that possible. And if you're here tonight, and, and you want to walk through that door, then please talk to someone um, who's one of the, the small group leaders or talk to myself. Because the promise that's on offer through what Jesus did is truly the only thing that can be an anchor for our souls um, in the times that we're living in. So Psalm 16, a psalm of worship and a psalm that points to Jesus. Let me pray for us. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for just taking my foolish words and just, um, I pray that you've used them tonight. I pray, Father, that um, we would not just make this about ourselves um, and just say, man, how can I um, just have the heart of worship that David had? But instead, Lord, we just look to Jesus. We look at what he did for us um, and just be so blown away by that, Lord. Would you help us to fall in love uh, with him? And God, would you um, just, in, in, in whatever way, Lord, that, that each of us needs it tonight, just help us come one step closer to having the penny really drop. Um, help us understand in a deeper way, Lord, um, the incredible love and grace and mercy you have shown us um, through what he did. In Jesus' name, amen.